Hi, everyone. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivry. We're back with another episode of Vox Tablet. Today, tracking down three people who helped build a new Jerusalem. In much of Jerusalem these days, you'll find a busy modern city. There's a newish light rail system, sprawling shopping malls, huge new apartment buildings. But there are also iconic edifices and homes that went up nearly 100 years ago, when Jerusalem first started to grow beyond the walls of the historic old city. Who were the people, the architects, decades ago, who put their stamp on this new Jerusalem? Writer Adina Hoffman, who lives part-time in Jerusalem, wanted to find out. In her new book, Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Hoffman examines the lives of three of them, Eric Mendelssohn, Austin St. Barb Harrison, and Spiro Huri. Adina Hoffman is speaking with us today about the book from a studio in New Haven, where she lives the rest of the time. Adina, welcome to Vox Tablet. Hi, it's great to be here. We last spoke to you a few years back with your husband, Peter Cole, about Sacred Trash, the book you wrote on the amazing collection of documents discovered in the Cairo Geniza, and about the wonderful collection of characters who spent their lives studying those documents. How did you get from there to this book, which is about three architects who shaped Jerusalem in the first half of the 20th century? Uh-huh. Well, actually, there is an interesting connection. It's not a direct connection. But um, I mean, there were a lot of things that went into the making of this new book. Um, in part, it was just a function of my walking. I've been walking around Jerusalem for almost 25 years now and looking at buildings and thinking about buildings and thinking, I tend to think biographically. So I also began to think about the people who had built those buildings. But in one particular instance, one of those buildings was actually a building that Peter and I first spent time in because of the Cairo Geniza. And that's actually the Shokin Library, um, which which is in Rehavia, right on the edge of Talbia. And it's we, we went there for sacred trash in search of um, the, the stories of the various scholars who had worked in the library and the documents they were reading in photostat there. It wasn't about the building itself, but almost as soon as we set foot in that building, we were fascinated. And that kind of planted a seed. We ended up just writing a few sentences about Eric Mendelssohn in, in sacred trash and about um, the building. But I was fascinated and wanted to know more. And Zalman Shakin, the man who, who hired... Um, Eric Mendelssohn to build that building and a house right next door, a kind of villa, was also a figure in Sacred Trash. So there are all these strands that do connect that book to this book. Well, why these architects in particular uh, when there were so many architects? I mean, how did you single, how did you focus in on Eric Mendelssohn, Austin St. Barb Harrison, and Spiro Huri? Yeah, well, it wasn't exactly a scientific uh, process of, <laughs> of selection. At some very basic level, these simply have become some of my very favorite architects in the course of that walking and looking. I mean, I have to say, I started out not even knowing who had built most of the buildings I was looking at. You know, I just, I, I don't have a car, I walk a lot. And so in the course of walking around Jerusalem, I became, you know, these buildings sort of entered into my unconscious almost, you know, the post office, for instance, every day, I'm in the post office, mailing something, checking our mailbox. And it happens that Austin St. Barb Harrison built that post office. And that's something that only occurred to me or I only found out about after many years of entering that post office. And the building right next to that um, post office is what was at one point um, when I first came to Jerusalem, Bank Umi, which was when it was built in 1939, was the Anglo-Palestine Bank. And that happens to have been one of Mendelssohn's buildings. And these are buildings that I just really loved. And so at some level, the book sort of took shape gradually, really in an unconscious way, I think, as I was thinking about these buildings and then beginning to think about 
not just the people who had built them, but also where had these buildings come from? I mean, in a, in a very actual sense, where had the people who imagined these buildings come from? And I think one of the fascinating things for me about the Jerusalem cityscape um, in general is the fact that so much of what is considered now to be sort of just native to the landscape, the, the parts of the landscape that people completely take for granted are actually things that have been imported. They've come from elsewhere. And it happens that these three architects, Mendelssohn, Harrison, and Hori, and Hori, I should say, is the sort of odd man out here. He's a bit of a mystery figure, and it took a lot more work um, for me to find out even who he was. And it turns out, I mean, I, I don't want to reveal too much, but I will say he was he was um, Greek Orthodox Arab, um, and you know a lot of his traces have been erased. But all three of them, I think, share a certain fascination with a kind of hybrid quality that comes from both bringing these foreign elements and their own fascination with the the, the spirit of that place of Jerusalem itself. And there's a kind of merging of these impulses, both to um, to to bring their their own ethos from afar, their own aesthetic, and also to sort of somehow merge it or marry it to what is there already or what has been there. Um, so that fusion fascinated me. I think I was also drawn to the fact that these these are not really, I mean, they are representatives in a way. They each come to represent something. And I think by my putting them in the book this way, they end up inevitably representing something. I mean, Mendelssohn was a Jew and a refugee from, from Nazi Germany. Uh, Harrison was the government architect of the British mandate. He was very English, although he was an Englishman who'd spent much of his life, his adult life, life um, abroad. He was he spent his whole adult life in the East. And then Hori, who comes from somewhere um, that I only reveal toward the end of the book, but who is also not from Jerusalem, but who has this other um, cultural um, identity. So they're all on the one hand representative. On the other hand, they really are all very much their own men. They're kind of mavericks in a way. And that also fascinated me. It would have been possible to have found architects who were more sort of representative um, of you know the Zionist movement or or something, but I loved the way in which they each um, thought for themselves. And these are artists; um, they're not just builders. Um, not to put down building. I mean, the book is obviously about physical building, but it's also about what it means to build a city in a social way as well. I want to talk a little bit about each one individually. Let's start with Mendelssohn. Mm -hmm. He first made a name for himself in Berlin. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. He was actually really one of the most acclaimed and busiest architects in Weimar Germany. Um, he he had an incredible, um, incredibly busy schedule and a very large office that he oversaw. And he was responsible for some really, really dynamic buildings. And they're the buildings that he's best known for. I mean, of the three architects I've written about, he's the only one who really has an international reputation. And people who know architecture will know the name Mendelssohn. But what they tend to know are just a couple of buildings. Ironically enough, they all know, everybody knows, if you know Mendelssohn, you know of his very first building, which is something called the Einstein Tower that he built in Potsdam in Germany for Albert Einstein just a year or two before he won the Nobel Prize as a place for him to sort of work out his theory of relativity. And it's a weird building. It's a kind of sort of stucco covered modernist spaceship. Um, it's not actually my favorite Mendelssohn building. Um, to my mind, these buildings he built in Berlin, mostly for Jewish clients, are just incredibly alive and, and sort of kinetic. There's He built, for instance, um, an incredible um, movie house, the Universum Cinema, which was part of the largest commercial and um, 
entertainment complex built in Germany during the whole Weimar period. And it's incredible. It's a kind of boat um, floating down the street, um, and just incredibly alive with these curves. And Mendelssohn is famous for his curves, the, the curve, the kind of prows of these buildings. He also built a series of department stores for Zalman Schacken, that same Zalman Schacken who would come to Jerusalem and hire Mendelssohn to build that library in the house. And Schacken, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, was not only um, a very enterprising businessman and department store owner. He was also uh, a major cultural patron and a publisher. He was the founder of Shock and Books. His family um, bought Haaretz and to this day still runs Haaretz, the, the newspaper in, in, in Tel Aviv. Um, so Schocken was a force, and he hired Mendelssohn to build these department stores, inc- including just some amazing structures. And in fact, that's actually another little thread to Sacred Trash. We actually have a picture in our book, uh, which I actually repeat in this book. I, I did it almost. <laughs> I, it wasn't that I'm just so repetitive. I felt that I actually wanted to sort of, you know, echo that. Um, this Stuttgart department store that, that Schocken hired Mendelssohn to build, which is simply a magnificent building by any standard. Um, so... That was Mendelssohn in Germany. He built elsewhere in in Europe as well. So he had this thriving career, and then suddenly that was cut short very abruptly um, by the rise of Hitler. And I should say that Mendelssohn had flirted with Palestine much earlier. He'd actually come to Palestine in 1923. He'd even put his name on a list, a Jewish agency list of engineers willing to go to Palestine in, I think it was 1920, 1921. Um, And he had started to work on various plans in the 20s. None of those plans panned out, and there were various reasons for that. Um, But he also was ambivalent. I think he wasn't quite ready to take that plunge. He had a lot of sort of committed Zionist friends who who went straight to Palestine, and he wasn't ready to do that. And it's a complicated blend of his own ambivalence and also his own success in Germany. He really didn't have a reason to go elsewhere, um, but then suddenly he did. And in March of 1933, he and his wife, Louisa, basically fled with a stamp collection and a suitcase. Um, and then he found himself in a very different situation um, in which he really had to figure out what to do with himself. And as an architect, you're not just moving your, your, yourself and your family. You're also having to learn a whole new landscape and a new set of materials. In his case, he actually they went first to Holland and then they went to London. And in London, he actually set up an architectural practice. And for several years, he was commuting back and forth between London and Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem, it was um, partly at the um, invitation of Chaim Weizmann, who was then um, he was the de facto head of world Jewry and had um, commissioned Mendelssohn to build him a villa um, in Rehovot, which is still standing today, and and Schocken, who'd also asked him to come and consider the possibility of building um, these two buildings. And the Hadassah Medical Organization was also interested in having Mendelssohn build the hospital, which he would eventually build on Mount Scopus. So suddenly he was being sort of invited in a more official capacity and honored. You know, he had not a small ego, and he wanted <laughs> to be called, he said. He really was waiting for Palestine to call him. He envisioned himself as the sort of master builder of the place. Um, but it was not an easy transition, um, you know, from that acclaim and from those grand, the grand scale that he was able to work in in Germany. He was suddenly much more limited by the scale of Palestine and by the materials, you know, in Jerusalem, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, in Jerusalem is a city in which by law you must build in stone. Um, 
And so this is a whole new thing for an architect to figure out how to do. Somebody who'd been using concrete and steel and glass is suddenly forced to work in this new material. And he loved it. I mean, he was fascinated by the local architecture. And that's, again, to return to that question of sort of what's foreign and what's local. He was really, really fascinated by what he found in terms of the Palestinian vernacular architecture, Arab architecture, and he wanted to find a way to sort of fuse his own modernist impulses with what he found. I didn't realize it was a law that you can only uh, work in stone. Yeah, well, it's an interesting law, and it's actually a law that comes from the period of the mandate, um, from the very earliest period of the mandate. There was a military governor, Ronald Storrs, who I also write about in the book, who essentially, he was a kind of a purist, and he had this sense that, that the city must be Preserved, although he was already contemptuous of various modern things that were hap- that, that had happened and had already gone up around the old city wall. So he made a law really on the very first days of the military government in 1918, the British military government, that all building within the old city had to be in stone. And he banned the use of stucco and corrugated tin and other materials. That was later in the 30s expanded to include the whole city, including what was beyond the old city walls. And by now, the, the law has even evolved so that you nobody they used to build with you know blocks of stone so that a whole, the whole wall would be stone now it's cement it's concrete that's faced in stone mm-hmm. but that's still that's still um, uh, that's by law um, you know people find all kinds of ways around it and now with all of these tall buildings people are try, it's hard to build a skyscraper in stone yeah. so they're finding ways to try to work with it it's not always that effective um, but Mendelssohn figured it out and I think his stone building They're very different from his German buildings. And in fact, he was contemptuous of many of his um, European contemporaries who'd also come to Palestine who he felt were simply importing wholesale um, these German buildings, his own buildings. He, He actually felt that they were imitating what he had done in Germany, plunking these completely um, mismatched structures, I mean, mismatched in terms of the the landscape, plunking them down in Palestine. He called them bastard buildings. They didn't belong there. He thought that this new context demanded a new kind of architecture, which would admit that the country was not um, a virgin country architecturally, he says, um, that basically there somebody was here before we were and they figured out how to build and there are reasons to build this way. It's not just sentimentality or some sort of romantic or orientalist idea. I mean, there's a little bit of that, surely. But on the other hand, it's also about the climate. You know, when you've lived in a, in a country for hundreds and thousands or thousands of years, you, you figure out how to deal with the hot sun and with the winds. And he was trying to learn the lessons of these local architects, but to fuse them, but not to imitate. He was not building um, in the, the Palestinian vernacular. He was obviously building these modernist structures, but he was trying to take certain cues from what he was finding on the ground. The way you tell it in the book, he was not a very easy man to work with. No, he was not. He called himself the Oriental from East Prussia, and or, <laughs> yeah, which I think is, you know, you know, there's a certain, obviously, this cliche of the difficult architect and the starchitect, the term did not exist at the time. <laughs> But I also, I think to his, in his defense, I mean, I think he wasn't, he was not an easy man. He had a fairly large ego and he was a perfectionist and he drove the people around him 
um, a little bit crazy with his um, with his demands, but he drove himself that way as well. And I think he really had a vision, and it wasn't simply about his ego. It was really he was an artist, and I think for him, these compromises that were inevitably um, necessary, and they're necessary again. I mean, some of this is true of architecture anywhere. I don't, I'm, you know, it's a kind of cliche to talk about the struggles between the patron and the architect, and you know, the budgetary problems that inevitably arise with various large projects. But in Palestine and in Jerusalem in particular, the pressures are just quadruple. If you know, I mean, it's the national struggles that are going on around. And I mean, the sense that nothing happens in Jerusalem without some sort of political, um, you know, there are political implications to every decision that are made. And so, and there's also violence that's taking place that's sometimes literally halting building and, you know, the quarries are suddenly closed. um, So that in addition to all the usual difficulties, you have those. And so he was struggling with that. And he was trying in the face of that, to somehow hold on to his vision of what could be. Um, so, yeah, he was difficult. I actually really, I came to really love him in a way. And, I mean, it's partly, I think I had a, a an interesting um, and obviously sympathetic informant in his wife, who's obviously no longer alive, but mm-hmm. Louisa wrote a wonderful memoir, which is, it's an unpublished memoir. But she is able somehow in this memoir to account both for his, difficulty, and I think he was difficult to be married to as well, but also for his vision and really a kind of a genius. Um, and so I came to respect him as much as um, as to be sort of, you know, <laughs> there he goes again, you know, insisting on this and on that. Um, they didn't stay, though, there, did they? They no, left again. They did not. Why did they leave? Well, it's again, it's a complicated blend of things. I think it's, you know, when one is writing biography, it's dangerous to sort of reduce um, explanations like this to a simple answer. But I mean, I think on the one hand, there was this very real fact of these extra pressures that had come to bear. The budgets had almost entirely dried up for such big projects as the projects he was interested in during the war. Well, first in the late 30s, there was a great deal of political violence within Palestine and then during the war. So he didn't have that many projects to work on. So there was that. I think there was also this frustration that he had that he hadn't somehow been singled out as the great and only architect who would somehow be handed the plans for the whole country. Um, but and then on top of it, there was actually they said her Louisa's explanation in her memoir, which I don't completely buy, but I also wouldn't completely dismiss it, is that um, you know Rommel had arrived in North Africa in Libya, and they were afraid. They were people who had already had to flee once, um, flee their home once, and they were afraid that Rommel might be on his way to Palestine. Now, what doesn't quite hold water about that is that there were a lot of other. Um, refugees who stayed, and they did not stay. And I do think at some level, he says to her at one point, he writes in a letter um, that Judea is heavenly, but too small for me, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing slightly. He he felt that he needed this, the larger scale that might be afforded him in a place like America, which is in fact where he ended up. And it wasn't a completely happy decision. In fact, I think it was an unhappy decision. And even after he left, he was still looking into the possibility of coming back to Palestine if he could find the right projects on the right scale, because once he came to America, he was basically confined to building suburban synagogues. Um, he did build a few other things um, you know, in San Francisco, but basically it was a kind of a frustrated career post-Jerusalem. 
In the second part of your book, you introduce us to Austin St. Barb Harrison, who was British. In fact, he was so British, you tell us he was a descendant of Jane Austen. Yes. Uh, How did he land in Israel in the early 1920s? Yeah, well, so Harrison is a very different figure from Mendelssohn, just temperamentally. He was a very, very private person, a very kind of refined and restrained person and very Protestant person, um, a lovely man by all accounts. He was really beloved by his friends, but he was intensely private. I mean, for a public servant to be so private um, is kind of fascinating to me. Um, he came, he he left England, as I'd said. He, he was in England um, actually only through his teenage years. He actually went to college in Canada um, and then came back to England briefly and did a little bit of, and studied for an architectural degree and worked just very briefly in London. And then he basically spent the, in the rest of his life living in the East. He first went to, to Greece and to Macedonia where he was working on um, building, uh, sort of rebuilding cities after the First World War uh, and and trying to, to kind of reconstruct that area, which had been pretty devastated. He became absolutely fascinated with archaeology and not just archaeology, but also, you know, there's a kind of uh, connection between archaeology and architecture in this book. You can't build anything in Jerusalem without having to dig down and you're always hitting bones. And he was fascinated by the architecture he found in the wider Middle East, um, in Islamic architecture and in Byzantine architecture. And he began to teach himself. He came out of a very different tradition from Mendelssohn. He was sort of trained in a Beaux-Arts mode, which is to say a kind of rational, um, very grand clean symmetries, but he somehow extended this out um, into his fascination with these other Islamic and, and Byzantine modes. And so he knew he wanted to be in the East somewhere in some capacity. And when um, a job was advertised, you know, in, in the colonial service, essentially asking for a young architect, unmarried, um, who would be willing to go to Palestine immediately, he seized the opportunity. And um, he was there for a long time. He was there from 1922 to 1937 in Palestine, and then he continued to live in the East after he left, and he did leave too. Um, there's a certain pattern here. Uh, he was in Egypt and in, in Cyprus and in Greece. In fact, in Cyprus, he was actually next-door neighbors and very good friends with the writer Lawrence Durrell, huh. who dedicated the book Bitter Lemons to him. Um, and he's somebody who seems to have had a real gift for friendship. He had these very devoted friends of a certain, especially, not only, but a certain British category of expatriate. These people like Durrell and Freya Stark, the the female um, sort of Arabist and adventurer and writer who were wandering the Levant during these years. As the official architect of the mandate, what, what did that mean? What did it entail? And what kind of mark did he leave on the city? Right. Well, it entailed every kind of thing in the sen- every kind of official thing in the sense that he was expected to build everything from police stations to literally public lavatories to schools uh, and at first and also to build one of his first projects was actually to build the Palestine pavilion at the British uh, the the grand exhibition that was held at Wembley in 1924 which was basically a celebration of British colonialism and he was asked or in, you know ordered to build the Palestine pavilion which he tried to build in a sort of local you know according to local architectural modes 
loads, he was very upset with what was what happened to it because, of course, a committee got hold of it and changed it completely. So at first, his work was confined to that sort of thing, and it made him pretty miserable because he really was extremely gifted and I think had this sense of what he could do if he was actually given the opportunity. But at first, he was sort of doing a lot of this kind of pretty bureaucratic, um, not exactly cookie-cutter cookie architecture, but it wasn't didn't demand inspiration. But then, um, I mean, he built several really, really wonderful buildings. And to my mind, one of my very favorite buildings in Jerusalem is his. And that's what's now known as the Rockefeller Museum, which at the time of its uh, construction was the Palestine Archaeological Museum. And for those of you who know um, Jerusalem, it's actually a building that is very little visited these days uh, for complicated reasons. It's in East Jerusalem. It's outside, just outside the old city walls. And it's so it's very deep inside Palestinian East Jerusalem. So Israelis are sort of wary of going there. Palestinians don't go there because it's a very officially Israeli institution. There are a lot of Israeli flags flying all around. So I am often walking around there, just these empty, echoing corridors. But it's a fascinating building. It blends Harrison's, all of Harrison's fascinations. He somehow has this way, you know, I said, mentioned earlier that Mendelssohn was interested in the vernacular architecture of Palestine. And those are sort of peasant houses, and there's certain forms, domes, and cubes that have domes on top and a certain stepped um, approach to the hilly landscape. So that certainly informed Harrison, but he was also drawing from a much, much wider vocabulary of, for instance, uh, crusader forts and Byzantine churches and Ottoman mansions. Uh, the Alhambra is clearly an influence when it comes to the Rockefeller. Anyone who's been there, if you walk into the central courtyard, you feel a strange echo of, you know, the court of the Myrtles at the Alhambra. But he's not it's not an academic thing where he wants you to say, oh, this must recall, you know, the mm -hmm. here he is quoting the Alhambra. He's trying to fuse these things into a kind of almost timeless, um, just these pure forms. And it's quite spectacular. And to my mind, I think there's also something he's doing in terms of Jerusalem itself. It's This building is located right outside the old city walls, as I said. And if you look across the old city from on high, you see just this incredible mixture of it's a bit of a mess, but it's a fascinating mess of domes and, you know, spires and church towers and minarets. And it's, it's, there's something angry about the landscape. Everybody's kind of, all the buildings are sort of fighting with each other for space and for air. And in a way, Harrison has found a way with the Rockefeller Museum to almost comment on that because it almost feels like a little miniature city of its own, the, the museum right beside it, but it's a much calmer museum in which all of these pieces come together. So there's something I write in the book, there's something sort of utopian about it on the one hand, although utopian is of no place. And this really feels of its place, but it, as it as the place would be in a more ideal world. Um, there's something aspirational about his architecture. You said he left in 1937, and yeah. as you write in the book, he left sort of uh, secretly yeah. after 15 years, kind of on the dot, under cover of night, right. destroyed a lot of his uh, papers. He seems like he sort of had a fraught relationship with Jerusalem, but also left so covertly. How uh, do we understand this? Was he actually terribly unhappy there? 
Again, I think it's hard to reduce it to one thing. And in this case, there's a lot more mystery involved than there is with Mendelssohn because, as you said, he burned a lot of his papers. Uh, luckily, he saved some of them. And I don't know what he was burning, and I don't know what it was that he didn't want his future biographer to know. Um, I sense that he was very frustrated. I know he was very frustrated by, again, the same sorts of political pressures that had been brought to bear on Mendelssohn. In his case, they were, you know, he was also working under the control of the British government, which had its own demands. And so that was very frustrating for him. But I think he also, this was a deeply peaceful person, actually a kind of a pacifist, who kept finding himself in these sort of very violent situations. And I think that was incredibly hard for him. It almost pained him physically to be surrounded by such anger on all sides. And he really was not a partisan. He didn't take sides with the Arabs, with the Jews. He he was very even-handed in his feelings, and some of his closest friends were Jews. He obviously had a lot of contact with, with, with various Arabs and, and had friends who were Palestinian Arabs. So that was painful for him. You know, whether there was a sexual reason, a romantic reason, he, he's, his, his letters are absolutely silent on the subject of that sort of thing. So I have to wonder if maybe some, it was something more personal that we just can't know. You know, and I do think I was wary of, of, of speculating too wildly because there's no proof of anything like that. But, you know, you also have to read the silences in an archive, not just what you find. So he also, as I'd said earlier, he was this public servant, but he was intensely private. And I think the official role had really begun to to weigh on him in a way he despised being at these public functions. There's actually a photograph that I reproduce in the book, which I find kind of funny, also painful, though, in which he's sitting on the on the little stage that's been erected for the 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 laying of the foundation stone for the museum and the high commissioner is there and this one and that one. And Basically, he is. You can see him in the back, and his head is in his hands. He's trying not to be seen. I mean, he's very proud of the building, but he doesn't want to have to deal with with this official role of being the representative of his his Majesty's government. Um, it simply didn't suit him. He was a very he was somebody of intense, intensely refined sensibility in terms of the way he decorated his own home. And um, Lawrence Durrell has just a beautiful description of what he did with with a kind of rundown hovel of a place that he was living in in Cyprus that was later um, the way he transformed it. And so he, he loved his own private spaces, and I think it was increasingly hard for him to be in this public zone. I should say that not only did he flee Palestine, he fled the colonial service. He basically waited until the day after he could collect his pension from the colonial <laughs> service, and then he left. And he, as you said, he didn't tell anyone. He told a few colleagues that he was leaving, and then he just disappeared. He didn't even sell his furniture. He arranged for that to happen in his absence, and he went to Egypt um, just to get out of there. I want to turn to the last uh, person you focus on, and that is Spiro Huri, yes. about whom we know very little, except that his name appears on a few cornerstones around the city. How did you first uh, figure out that he even existed, and what made you want to find out more about him? Mm-hmm. Well, his name turns up in um, in a couple of books in Hebrew about the local architecture. He's just sort of mentioned in passing as having been a very important architect um, during the mandate. One architectural historian calls him the very best Arab architect um, of the time, but that's about all. And that's a kind of very limited, uh, I mean, not only does it not tell you very much, but I wasn't even sure what this meant, Arab. I mean, it's a complicated 
thing to just be sort of lumping everybody into these groups when, in fact, with a name like Spiro, he's clearly also Greek. And so part of what I set out looking for was not just this man, but I was also trying to figure out even the context in which someone like this would exist. How did he see himself? How did the city see itself in terms of identity? I think there's a way in which these days, especially when it comes to Jerusalem, everyone is labeled this or that, and it's very unfortunately rigid. You are either a Jew or an Arab or a Greek or whatever it is, but it's, it tends to be pretty inflexible. And my hunch was, in part from looking at the buildings themselves, which are his buildings, which are quite variable. There are some buildings that look very, quote unquote, Eastern. They have, you know, um, arched windows and inset Armenian uh, pot, ceramic panels and crenellations that are clearly drawing on a kind of um, Islamic um, motif, Islamic motifs, but then he also has other kinds of buildings that don't seem that way at all. So I was trying to figure out who is this person who is able to build in all these form, in all these different modes, and is it possible? And I thought that it was, and in fact, this was confirmed as I started to dig for any trace of him. Is it possible that during that period? people had multiple identities in Jerusalem and that that was not anomalous. It was actually a given that it would be possible to be, for instance, a Greek Orthodox Arab Palestinian Ottoman who spoke fluent French. Um, These things didn't contradict each other. They were part and parcel of what the city was, that the city was able at that point to somehow um, allow people this fluidity. Not to say that that there weren't uh, national divisions. Of course there were. And one of the things that surprised me as I was researching this book was to find just how, how entrenched some of those national ideas were from very early on. Why was it uh, more difficult to find traces of who Hori was than the others? I mean, that his erasure is kind of telling too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think there are several reasons. First of all, Mendelssohn and Harrison were both building for either for um, institutions like Hadassah or for governments, you know, the British government, or for politically powerful clients like Zalman Shakin, who who left substantial archives, maniacal archives, actually, in Shakin's case. There's a very, really amazing archive held at that same Shakin library. Um, so that these people, they all left a trace. So that even though, for instance, Harrison burnt a lot of his private, his personal papers, I was still able to find all kinds of things about him in Brit- British governmental records and in, in fact, the records of the Rockefeller family. Um, they sponsored that Palestine Archaeological Museum so that there's a lot of, there's a, there's a real paper trail. And in the case of Mendelssohn, his wife saved everything so that there are many letters and there's her memoir and all of his sketches. When it came to Spiro Hori, he built almost entirely for private clients and he built for he did build for all kinds of clients. I should also say Mendelssohn built almost entirely for Jews. He did build one government hospital in Haifa, but basically his clients in Palestine were Jewish. Harrison built entirely for the government. And Hori built for all kinds of people. He had clients who were Muslims, who were Catholics, who were Jews. He built a very impressive um, mansion for a, a Turkish Jewish judge who came in the late Ottoman period and stayed on. And this is one of the houses that has Hori's signature on it. So he built for all kinds of clients. 
But with the exception of those few Jewish clients, um, let's face it, a lot of, you know, the, the, the history of that private building, especially for Arab clients, let's say, has been erased. And that's a political thing that's happened in Jerusalem. I mean, it is said that the records of the the municipality were accidentally destroyed in 1948. So not all of the records, but the building records. So by accident, which I wonder about the accident of that, but that whole category of, of documentation has disappeared. And when it comes to the private people he was building for, they left. They either were driven out or fled, or you can, that's a whole separate debate. But the point is that they're not there anymore to preserve their archives. Uh, so that it's much harder to trace um, the history of his own building. I was able, you know, and I, the last section of the book, as, as you know, Sarah, but those who haven't read don't know, I, I, I actually enter the picture myself as a character desperately searching Spiro Khuri because I really, I figured that at some level I had to draw the reader into this this quest of mine to find him because it's not just a straightforward biographical matter of going to the archive and looking up the files. There is no archive. So that looking for him, and I should say this took place in the summer of 2014 in the middle of the Gaza war. It was slightly crazy. I'm running around in the heat and during the war looking for traces of this missing architect, Arab architect, um, I basically looked everywhere. I went into the Greek Patriarchate and into the Ecclesiastical Court and into the state Israel State Archive and into the Central Zionist Archives, and I found little pieces here and there, but his traces are, are very absent, and there are some personal reasons, too, that have to do with his biography, and I don't want to say too much because that's <laughs> revealed later in the book why this would be, why he was not necessarily being, his memory was not preserved later on. But um, but I felt it behooved me to try, and I'm very grateful to him for having written his name on the side of those buildings because otherwise we really might not have known that he was there at all. You know, to be honest, I'd never thought of architects and their work as providing a useful lens for how to understand the spirit of a city. Mm -hmm. But your book seems to really uh, be anchored in that notion. What do you hope or want that readers will take away from these biographies to help us understand the city of Jerusalem? Well, several things. I mean, I think, first of all, I'd say I chose to write about three architects and not one or two or five architects. And there was a reason for that three. And aside from the fact that three is a nice number, you know, there are three corners of a triangle and three wishes for the genie and all that, I felt in a way that three would help me get past one, which it tends to be the way Jerusalem is often discussed. It is the eternal, undivided capital of the Jewish people, or it is Islamic. You know, basically, the claim for oneness is that it is ours, whoever we are. We, we control this city. And to me, that's very ugly. Um, and it's also not true to what I see all around me every day in Jerusalem. So that's one, and why I didn't want to choose one architect. Two strikes me as almost as problematic, and it's problematic in different ways. And this is the sort of version you get from a lot of media accounts, newspaper accounts of the situation in Jerusalem. It's either this or it's that. You know, it's you're either pro-Palestinian or you're pro-Israeli. And, you know, you're, this, this is kind of tug of war that is, is the way the city is depicted between these two forces. Uh, to me, and this is where we get to three, and three is obviously just the beginning. It, three opens out onto a much more multiple 
version of of what the city is has been historically and what it still is, but in a kind of very, very endangered way and what I would hope it could continue to be, there is a multiple, um, there's a multiplicity to Jerusalem that has been there and that I think it's critical to try and retain. And there's a way in which these architects in their, each in their own way, and I think when put in in combination, um, embody this sort of the the multiplicity of the place and in their own architecture they're also interested in these hybrids in bringing together all these different forces that have shaped the city over the years i mean jerusalem has been conquered i think it's and reconquered 44 times in the course of its history wow. so to to simply reduce it to to a one or a two and i mean okay even a three i realize is not doesn't begin to cover it but the three was meant again to to sort of open out onto all these other possibilities and you know in terms of the built city i mean you actually asked about architecture i'm answering you in a slightly roundabout way you know i think again when people think of the city of jerusalem and even jerusalemites and its architects they tend to think in these kind of grand old religious terms or you know much more um kind of grandiose historical terms they think of solomon and his temple they think of suleiman the magnificent and his walls and that's all fine and it's true and there are certainly these much older grander structures um that are either standing or not standing i should also say jerusalem is just as famous for buildings that have been knocked over as for buildings that are still standing but it occurred to me early on you know what about this city that most of us are walking through all the time who built this and in terms of the built environment, that's actually the function of the imaginations of people like like these three architects. Um, you know, so in terms of where architecture hooks up to the the larger spirit of place, I think I was trying to do to do various things by by choosing architecture. I'm not trained as an architectural historian. This is I've learned all this in the course of writing this book. But, you know, there is a way in which, you know, you have this literal building that's going on with people actually stacking stones on top of each other and, and, and you know, digging pits and all of that. But you also have this question of how do we build a city? And by build a city, I don't just mean the physical facts of the city, but how do we build a functioning society in this city? And, you know, in Jerusalem, it's true everywhere. But again, in Jerusalem, I think it's even more the case that surfaces and depths are, you know, profoundly linked so that you know, Jerusalem is a beautiful city. I still think it is. It's one of the most, it lifts my heart in certain ways. It's also definitely one of the ugliest cities I know. And and it makes me angrier and, and more depressed than any place I've ever lived. And I've spent most of my adult life in Jerusalem. Um, and it infuriates me and it saddens me. Um, it also delights me sometimes. Um, but that that ugliness, that physical ugliness, is very often a function of a kind of human ugliness, what it is that the people of Jerusalem are doing to one another and to the city. So that, you know, you'll have these kind of incredible, you know, the, accumulations of buildings in places, everybody trying to, to get to, to kind of, you know, claim land for themselves. You also have, you know, fights over actual neighborhoods. Who Whose neighborhood is this? Is this going to be a Palestinian neighborhood, which is what it's been in historically? Or, you know, what will happen when Jewish settlers invade it, essentially, and start piling on their own um, buildings? So it's not the physical and the sort of political and 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 human really social are never are never separate in Jerusalem. They're never separate anywhere, but again I think it's a kind of extreme case. Adina Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
Adina Hoffman is the author of Till We Have Built Jerusalem, Architects of a New City. It's out next month from FSG. It's great. Go get yourself a copy. And a word to you, our listeners. In our last episode, we asked for your experiences with mikvah immersion, if you've gone to a mikvah, that is. And we got a lot of really beautiful letters in response. We want to thank you. We always love to hear from our listeners. And so if you've got something you'd like to share about this week's episode, what's your favorite building in Jerusalem, which building in Jerusalem makes you want to look away, then by all means, email us at podcast at tabletmag.com. Again, that's podcast at tabletmag.com. We want your input. We always want your input. And make sure you've subscribed to Vox Tablet on iTunes or on any other podcast browser. That way you will never miss an episode. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sari Ivory. We thank you as ever for listening, and please join us again.